0: All right, I want to meet you in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Let's jump back into some Jesus parables. I've had a lot of fun lately exploring some of these Jesus stories. Jesus is a master storyteller. I want to start there with that idea that Jesus is a master storyteller to establish a couple of points before we read any Scripture, all right? And the first thing I want you to really consider is that we've talked a lot about the fact that Jesus teaches in an Old Covenant world. I'm in grace circles that have, and I'm not pointing fingers, and I'm certainly not casting stones. I'm just making a general statement from experience, all right? My experience has taught me that in a lot of grace circles, the teachings of Jesus have become secondary to the teachings of, say, the Apostle Paul. And Jesus is even oftentimes sort of marginalized in the way he teaches because a lot of us say things like, well, Jesus is teaching an old covenant audience and therefore he's saying things that you can't possibly accept in the new covenant world. And what that has done is caused a level of distrust in the teachings of Jesus among some grace people. So anytime they see Jesus saying something difficult, they'll just go, well, that ain't for you. And how many of you know, the worst thing you can do with the words of Jesus is go, that ain't for me. <laughs> it doesn't seem like there was anyone in his audience that he would have went, yeah, you're right, That you can ignore that last part. We'll just take you guys over here and give you a different word. Um, also, I don't think that, I think we're, our heart's in the right place there. We're really trying to get people focused on the new covenant. I'm going to give uh, it give that. But I don't think we realize that what we're doing is actually insulting Jesus' ability to teach beyond his time period. So what we're doing while we're trying to bring glory to the New Covenant to make sense of some, and I'm going to say this, I say this with all respect, to make sense of some otherwise nonsensical teachings by Jesus. Because sometimes Jesus has some things that sound nonsensical. And that might be because Jesus is trying to teach us that in many respects grace is nonsensical, which we've talked about here before. But while we're trying to bring glory to the New Covenant, I think what we're doing is we're, we're, t- we're taking Jesus' teachings and we're mistaking by not realizing that He does have the ability to teach past His time into your time to reach His hand. Take this sort of as a visual illustration to reach up the timeline to 2022 to Chapin and grab you and bring you into His time, not wall you out. And only preach to his own time, okay? And so I think the worst way to approach it is to think, Jesus is not talking to me, Jesus is talking to them. The reality is is that Jesus is always talking to you. And that leads me to a principle that really kind of sets us up as a baseline for understanding tonight, and that is this. Forgiveness is a death. I know that sounds odd because first of all, why would we be talking about death at all when we're people of life? But forgiveness is a form of death in that. And I, again, I have given you no context. So I promise the scripture, we're going to work on this tonight. This is kind of the theme we're working from is that forgiveness is a form of death because it is death to your rights of vengeance, to your right of payback. If I forgive you, I'm forgiving something that I either perceive you have done or I'm forgiving something you have done and I'm dying to getting it back from you. If I'm forgiving a financial debt, say you owe me money and I say, you're forgiven. You don't owe me money. I die to that debt. I die to it. I can't bring it up later if I forgave you of it. I have to die to it. It has to be a debt issue. That's a better way to say it. It has to be a dead issue. That thing you did to me that I forgive you for, if I forgive you for it, it has to be a dead issue to me. It may not be a dead issue to you, but it has to be a dead issue to me. Therefore, forgiveness is a death. When you forgive, you die to the right to be vindicated. You die to the right to be righted. You've been wronged, you want to be righted. You forgive, you die to the right to be righted. So you say, I don't have to be righted, I don't have to be paid back. I don't have to have things made up to me. I die to all of that. I am dead to all of that as an option. And in that, forgiveness is a death. So when you read forgiveness passages in the Bible, think about that. When you say God forgives us, God died to something. We are forgiven. Someone has died so that we cannot pay back. Do not owe them. And that's not difficult when I frame it around the cross. When I say to you, God has forgiven you of your sins through the power of the cross. What am I really saying? God died at Calvary so that you could be forgiven, but he didn't just die at Calvary. He died to your wrongs. All the stuff you owe God, He died to that. You don't owe me that any longer. You don't owe me your goodness. You don't owe me your morality. You don't owe me your worship. You don't owe me your money. You don't owe me your devotion. I forgive you. Good news, right? Easy to think of it in death terms when you think of God forgiving us because we look at the cross. God died on the cross. He died as a man. We go, yes, forgiveness must cost something. Someone dies when when they forgive. But we don't often think of it that way on our part. And so because Jesus is always thinking in terms of death, if my my writing on Jonah has taught me anything, it has taught me that Jesus is thinking in terms of the story of Jonah in that Jonah goes into a whale, goes into the depths of the sea, three days and three nights, and then Jonah comes out with the possibility of being a new Jonah. Okay, Jonah doesn't show up as the Jonah he should, but the possibility of being a new man is on the other side of the whale's belly. Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. This is the only sign that you shall receive, that I am from God. No other sign you shall receive. What sign is it? Jesus is going to get swallowed by a whale, thrown up? No, Jesus is going to go into the heart of the earth three days and three nights. In other words, the only sign you get that Jesus is who he said he is is if he resurrects. When he resurrects, you go, boom, he must be who he said he was. But notice, to resurrect, you got to die. Jesus' entire ministry is die, 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 die. I'm going to die, then I'm going to resurrect. And how in the world do we expect that salvation is anything less than we die and in Christ we resurrect? How can it be anything less than exactly what Jesus offered the entire world in his life, death, and resurrection? And therefore, forgiveness is sort of the currency Of of death and resurrection. Forgiveness is what it really looks like. You want to know what the cross and the resurrection look like in practical terms? It's forgiveness. So let me read for you a story of the parable, what is often called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I want to read the parable straight through. Very difficult for me to do because I love to pause and talk. So I'm going to try not to pause and talk. No promises. Don't hold me to it. All right? When we are done, though, we will come back and start the process of trying to work some of these verses. I want to try to lay this story out for you in Matthew 18, 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold Together with his wife and children, all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. He went and threw him into the prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. And then the Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now that ends in what seems like a very dark place, although I propose to you that the whole parable is a pretty dark place. It starts with a bright shining light, which gets dimmed pretty quickly. And by the end of the parable, we have the master of the, of the house, the Lord, saying, This is what's going to happen to you if you don't forgive. And because, and this is why I opened with what I did, because we are oftentimes trying to filter through some of the things that Jesus says in light of what the Apostle Paul says. We take some parables like this and we go, "Mm, I don't know what Jesus means by this, but he must be referencing an old covenant world Because in a new covenant world, that's not the way that forgiveness works. But I want you to put that on pause tonight, if you would. I want you to put that idea on pause. I'm not saying that it's entirely wrong. I'm saying that I want you to put it on pause. And I want you to assume that Jesus is a better teacher than that. Right? I want you to assume that Jesus knows that some new covenant people are going to be reading this story someday. And that it needs to do something to them. And it needs to do a whole lot more than, eh, you can ignore that last part. Because, you know, you live in the new covenant. And so if that be the case, then let's try to look at it through the eyes of a Jesus who's dealing with an old covenant world, but who is the very embodiment of grace and truth. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus is not prophesying of grace. He is grace. Jesus is not hoping for a better day. He is the better day. Now he knows he's going to have to die and resurrect to actually bring that better day, but he's carrying it with him. His entire ministry is carrying it with him. When he opens his mouth, he opens his mouth with grace. He doesn't open his mouth with law or performance. He opens it with grace in a law-based world. And so he has to work against that. He has to work with that. He has to work to transform that. Ultimately, the only transformation will be dying and raising again because Jesus can't talk the world into grace. Let me say that again. Christ cannot talk the world into good principled living any more than you can introduce the principles of Jesus to someone and bring salvation to their soul by them copying the Sermon on the Mount. I will say, if you would at least copy the Sermon on the Mount, the world you live in would be a little bit better place than it was before you started copying the Sermon on the Mount, but it wouldn't save your soul. It wouldn't bring you the life of God because there's something that happens in, in, in understanding the death and the resurrection. And so Jesus isn't trying to talk the world into grace. He's not giving these parables so that people will fix the way they think. He's showing us in action the activities of the kingdom. Because notice at the 23rd verse, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. That's the very first phrase. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven. For what reason? All right, well, you probably know that we didn't start reading at the right spot. I did it, I know. I put you in that verse, but I did it on purpose because I wanted to show you that these parables are responses to other things. Jesus isn't just willy-nilly throwing out some story about an ungrateful servant. He's throwing out a story about an ungrateful servant because of the conversation he's in the middle of. So go back just a few verses to verse 21 and read this very famous moment from the Gospels that all of you are perfectly aware of. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? as many as seven times. Should I stop at seven times? Seven's a nice round Hebrew number. Seven means perfection and completion. I'm a good Jewish boy. Seven seems appropriate. I mean, if a guy wrongs me once, He's lucky that I don't pop him, but you know what? I'm a good guy, so I'll forgive him. If he wrongs me twice, well, that's shame on him. It'd be shame on me if I didn't pop him, but you know, I was raised right, so I'll forgive him three. Surely you don't ask me to go past seven. That's just ridiculous. Seven's a long time. Seven makes me, and I'm being in his context, seven makes me a good Jewish follower of Moses. Seven is way more than any sane man should ever be expected to put up with in the offense category and heads up, I'll warn you, Jesus's answers are almost never what we want to hear. Just, that's just a fair warning. This is another reason, by the way, that we're struggling with some Jesus stuff. Like we read it and go, oh, I don't know, man, maybe you should just lean to Paul. because Jesus' answers are rarely what we want to hear because Jesus' answers challenge stuff. So you want to bring your seven good times to the Lord and go, here's my perfect, complete forgiveness. This is the best I got. What will Jesus say in response to that as many as seven times? Jesus says in verse 22, oh, no, 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 not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times or in some translations some greek said uh some english from greek says 70 times seven in other words no take your perfection and then just take it to infinity take what you think is the right amount and then go a little bit higher than that. And by a little bit, I'm being sarcastic. Just keep forgiving him over and over. over. Now, in some respects, Jesus is actually turning an old Hebrew number on its head, because way back in Genesis when Cain killed Abel, and he told God, people are going to kill me forever. They're going to want to kill me because of what I've done to Abel. And God says if they do, what they'll do is enter into a sevenfold curse. And so the Hebrew people had this idea, which is a principle that still stands. It's not just a Hebrew principle. It's a principle of this world, that when you go down the path of Cain in how you treat your neighbor, you bring seven times the destruction on your own head that you meted out on your enemy. That's the way of the world, man. That's You get what's coming to you, and then some. And then Cain's grandkid, Lamech, does pretty much the same thing. And the Bible says that Lamech goes to the Lord and goes, if my father Cain was avenged seven times, if, man, I'm into it 70 times. In other words, if you keep going down Cain's road, it doesn't get better. It just gets worse. Or as Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So isn't it interesting, coincidental, coincidental, Spirit-led that Jesus goes, no, take Cain's number and take Lamech's number, multiply them together. The kingdom's the opposite of the system of the world. So just as you go underneath the curse of the world for playing the world's game, I demand you flip that script and show them heaven's answer. And heaven's answer will be the exact opposite of whatever the answer is in the world. So, because Jesus has given an impossible number, 70 times 7, 77 times, that's out of the ordinary. Then Jesus goes, okay, for this reason, let me give you a kingdom story. That's what led us to our reading. He goes, here's why you need another story. He goes, let me give you an example of a king who's a great bookkeeper. And he has a guy under his employ that is one of his bookkeepers. And he begins keeping up his books and tallying up his receipts. And he realizes, and Jesus picks another absurd number because Jesus is a great storyteller. Remember, he just picked an absurd number, 70 times seven. So he picks an absurd number and he goes, he calls his employees in and he's got a guy that owes him $10 million, which by the way, in our money transferred from theirs, that's pretty close for, con- for inflationary purposes. 10 million bucks of debt. I don't know about your financial bottom line, but 10 million to me might as well be a billion. Like if you bring me in and go, hey Paul, you owe 10 million, I go, oh, you really? Why don't we just go ahead and bump another million on there? I'm that much closer to paying you off anyway. H- how about a hundred million? Five hundred million? A billion. Let's just get funny. How many how many billions do you want me to owe you? Because I am as close to paying you back on that as I am the other. That's the point. That's why Jesus goes nuts with the illustration. Everybody chuckles in the crowd because nobody owes 10 million to a bookkeeper in Jesus' day. But he's setting them up with a story. And so he goes, and so the king calls in his servants and he's got a guy that owes him, Jesus goes, let's say 10 million. And I go, oh, <laughs> million." He goes, yeah. Owes him 10 million. It's an absurd amount of money. Notice baseline starting point of the story for Jesus, a king who's a bookkeeper, who's owed. It's a God who's an account keeper who is owed. Jesus starts by teaching the law. He's in a legal world. He's in an old covenant world. That's what I was trying to tell you. You got a new covenant, Jesus, teaching an old covenant world. How do we get started? Let's start with the old covenant. How about Let me give you an example of where you live in a kingdom with a king who keeps short books. He's quick. But you're so good at sinning, you've piled up $10 million worth of debt. And everybody there goes, yeah, yeah. Sounds about like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the mentality that they have of God. So Jesus gives them what they know. We'll start there. He's going to give them what they know as a king who has a great debt, or his his servant has a great debt. I like to think of this as the bookkeeper God. And how many of you have had a Christianity that had in its focus a bookkeeper God? I I, want to challenge you to, to, I think you'll agree with this. If not, just wrestle with it. You don't have to fight me. But I want to challenge you that he was never a bookkeeper God. You just misnamed him. Okay? You thought he was a bookkeeper God. He wasn't a bookkeeper God, but you thought he was, and so you served him like one. Okay, that's, that's more appropriate. You served him as if he were a bookkeeper God. Why wouldn't you? You owed him 10 million bucks. Your debt was higher and you could pay back. Your sin was terrible. You weren't, good. You weren't a good tither. You weren't a good Bible student. You weren't a good Sunday school. And when you were good, you weren't good enough because you might as well owe a billion, right? I mean, it didn't really matter. No matter what you did, you could never climb that mountain of spiritual, financial, mental, emotional, physical debt that you owed a big thunderous bookkeeping God. And so the story goes... A sum large enough that what happens to the man in verse 25, his wife and his children, his possessions and everything's payments made and they put everybody into slavery and this is a debt so large that you've guaranteed perpetual slavery for generations of people in your spiritual line. And that's the gospel a lot of us heard. Basically a perpetual paying back of God that's passed on to our kids and that's passed on to our grandkids. Now watch the salvation experience of 26 because remember I told you you have a a new covenant Jesus in an old covenant world. And he's a great teacher. He's not bad at this. He's good at this. So he's going to reach out into the future and grab the kingdom. And he's going to slide it right back down in here to the bookkeeper. All right. And so the servant in verse 26 fell on his knees and said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Have patience with me. Makrothomison, big Greek word. Don't worry about it. Makrothomison really means big hearted. It means if you'll be big hearted with me, if you'll be now, it gets translated as patient or long suffering. Um, the English suffers long. Remember this from 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul goes, love is patient. Love is kind. Paul goes, love suffers long that, that's another phrase in the Greek for love is big hearted. We suffer long because we're big hearted. You know who you suffer long with? Your kids. More than you do anybody else in the world. You know why? Because you're big hearted for your kids. You're way bigger hearted for your kids than you are for your coworker. And you should be. Because your coworker's probably a snake, but your kids are angels. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that's ironic. Yeah, of course they are a bunch of angels, but they might as well be angels. Because you're big hearted for them. You're patient. Your love long endures. It's long suffering. The perfect, I mean, you know what the best image of God loving you is just think about how much you love your kids and what they have to do to get rid of your love. And you go, well, they couldn't get rid of my love. And you go, well, then quit acting like you're a better father than God. This is what I tell people. You go, how much does God love you? You go, well, he loves me, but he won't put up with this. I go, how much do you love your kids? What do they have to do to get rid of your love? Well, they couldn't get rid of it. Then why do you think you're a better dad than God is? You're not a better parent than the father. And so the father who's big hearted, the servant asks for the big hearted king. He goes, can you just be patient with me? If you're patient with me. Now listen to this. If you're patient with me, I promise you, I'll pay you back everything. How many of, that, how many of us does that sound like? In our walk. Now, remember, he's laid out legalism for you. He's when you've got a bookkeeper God, keeps big accounts, you got a bigger debt than you can pay, your whole family's in debt, your kids are going to be in debt. There's no way you're out of this, man. This is a perpetual generational curse that just goes on and on and on. What should you do? You go to God and go, if you'll just use your big old heart to have mercy on me, I promise you I'll pay you back. Listen to that. I promise you I'll pay you back. Verse 27. Out of pity for him, The Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. Here's a question I want to ask you. It's a very simple answer, but it's one that we so easily miss. By the way, pity here isn't pity in the English. Isn't pity the way we think of pity. Uh, Pity in the Greek is from the seat of your compassion. It's from that emotional place where you can't help but feel for someone. Okay. Out of pity the king forgave him his debt. Here's my question. It's as easy to miss. Did the king forgive him because he made promises or did the king forgive him because the king is big hearted and has pity? And the answer is easy. You know, I'm not tricking you. The answer is simple, but it's easy to run past this. The king ignores this in much the same way the father ignores the prodigal son that comes back and goes, I'll be as one of your hired hands. The father doesn't even listen to that garbage. I don't need another hired hand. I got hired hands. I want kids. I put a lot into you. I want you back. So the king doesn't say, I forgive you. Hey, don't forget. Next week is your first installment. Now, I don't want to bash us as ministers um, or the church. I love ministry and I love the church and I hope we can do better. But we for a long time have played bookkeeping gospel where we have poured pity onto people during the amazing grace part of the invitation only to remind them with a swift elbow to the ribs, either on their way out of church this week or in the follow-up new convert phone call next week, that there's some things expected of you now that you have received the goodness of God. Basically, what we're doing is saying, here's your bill pay as you can, but pay. And, and really what has happened to a lot of us is that Christianity has become us trying to square that bill with the house, even though the debt was way more than we could ever pay. And so we came in to be saved, forgiven of our sins, but then we went to work to repay the forgiveness, right? This is why you get exhausted by the way, with, with the faith. That's why we're all wore out. That's why we wanted to quit. I mean, it was, Can I I go back to the silliness? It's $10 million. I mean, what good are you doing? Here's my 10 bucks. It's all I got this week. You go, all right, see you next week. Is this ever going to end? No, you missed the part where I get your kids and your grandkids forever. This never ends. You can't pay this back. That's the point of grace. You got to see the sin so big so that grace makes sense. It's got to be big or you're going to try to pay it back. And guess what? Even when it's big, you're going to try to pay it back because that's our nature. And so the, fought, the, the king in the story doesn't forgive it because the man promises. The king in the story forgives because of his pity. I like to think of it this way. God's gut reaction right here was forgive him. The head reaction, the make sense reaction, the accountant reaction, figure out how to get your money back. God's gut reaction, forgive him. You got to forgive him. He's in over his head. Because God doesn't forgive you based on your promises. God forgives you based on God's pity. God doesn't forgive you based on how good you are. God forgives you based on how good God is. Oh, let me just live right there for a second. good. God doesn't do anything for you because he's found his one. (laughs) Look at him. He's so smart. I got the one that knows how to... Read the Bible. Look at this guy's so good at knocking on doors. Oh, look at him. He does not tie 10%. He ties 15. Oh, look at her. She's such a good worshiper. See how she closes her eyes during worship and puts her hands up in the air and dances around. She's so good at this. She's so good at this. No, he's not good to you because you're good. He's good to you because he's good. He's just a good God. He just, yeah. he, he, he doesn't need what you have. He just wants you. So out of pity, he forgives the entire debt. And this takes me back to that principle. What did I tell you? Forgiveness is a kind of death. Death to your rights, a vengeance death to your rights to be righted. Death to your rights to reclaim the debt. So what? Let's slow step here. What did the king actually do in regards to the debt? He died. He killed himself. He died. What did God do in regards to the debt? He came to earth as a man and he walked with his head up, up Calvary's hill, and he made all things new. And how did he do it? In the worst possible way we think kings would ever do it. Kings are supposed to win, not lose. Kings are supposed to kill, not be killed. And yet he goes to the cross and he suffers and he dies, not so that he can flip the tables and someday come back and be the guy that swings the sword, but so that we will learn that the only way you're going to win is to lose. The only way you're going to resurrect is to die. The only way you're going to follow Jesus is to lay the stuff down and say, here am I, Lord, send me. And so what does the king do to the debt? He dies to it. He dies to getting his money back. He goes, I'm done. You don't owe me anything. I die to getting it back. You are forgiven of the debt. And he does it out of the pity of his heart. And then the man leaves the room. But that same slave, verse 28. As he went out, came and fell upon his fellow slave who owed him 100 denarii. Now Jesus flips the comedy. 100 denarii. Even for inflationary purposes. 100 bucks. 100 bucks. You could probably swing it. Right. I mean, you might, maybe you don't have it in your wallet. You probably got it in your digital wallet. Probably got it on your credit card. Probably got it on your check card. Heck, a few of you probably have it squeezed in the seats of your car. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying point is it's not going to break you. You could probably come up with hundred and still make your mortgage. Maybe not, but you, you get my point. Yeah. Jesus goes from one silly extremity to the other. A guy that owes 10 million and the same guy that owed 10 million goes right out goes right out onto the street and finds a man that owes him 100 bucks and he literally holds his feet to the fire so that the man will give him the 100 bucks but this guy doesn't even have 100 bucks jesus chooses to go to the lowest possible end of the spectrum to a guy that can't scrape together the 100 to a guy that even that is as good as 10 million for and how does the man who is recently forgiven treating the man who needs forgiveness just as well? He throws him in prison along with all of his family, and he puts him in a perpetual debt that he can never pay back. And the word on the street gets back to the king. You know where the stories go, and of course we've read the end. but I hope you're starting to sense that Jesus is trying to do something in this story. that Jesus is really trying to better answer Peter's question. What was Peter's question? Hey. How many times I got to forgive? And Jesus goes, 70 times 7. And Peter probably kind of rolled his eyes like, what's that mean? He goes, okay, let me tell you a story. And so as the story unfolds, Peter's the audience, but so are you and I. This is why I mean Jesus is such a good teacher. He's reaching forward to 2022, and he's grabbing a group of New Covenant people, and he's pulling them back here, and he goes... Remember when you came in under law and a bookkeeper God? He goes, remember that feeling of euphoria when you received of the forgiveness of sins and you received of the goodness of God? And right there is where things begin to shift because what Jesus has done is introduced to us a man who heard about a debt being forgiven, but who did not receive it as an act of his father's pity and big-heartedness. He received it based upon his own promise to pay it back. And what he did was he walked out of the encounter with a good God with a head full of payback. And when you walk out of an encounter with a good God with a head full of payback, what will you do to the people around you? You will, not, you will only demand payback because that's the world you've created for yourself. Even though the debt you were forgiven was astronomical, you could never pay God back. You still go about it as if you owe God something and you turn your Christianity into a workhouse where you are constantly doing and doing and doing so that you can pay a God back who didn't forgive you because you promised, he forgave you because he pitied you. And we've forgotten why grace works. Grace doesn't work because you stumbled across brother so-and-so's book. Grace works because sin was too big for you. Where iniquity doth abound, grace doth much more abound. Here's a bubble buster. You know why you came into grace? You finally admitted you were a failure. It's not because you got smart. It's because you got dumb, finally. I don't want to, listen, I'm I'm right there in the middle. You want to know why we made it? Because it's the foolishness of the cross, Jesus said, by which many will be saved. He said, not many wise, not many noble are called. He goes, you're only going to figure this out when you stop being the smartest man in the room. Because the smartest man in the room is going to go get all the money he can from everybody else to try to pay God back because he's got a bookkeeping idea of what his accounts look like and he's just trying to make them better and better and better. But when you finally stop being the smartest man in the room and start being the biggest loser in the room, start admitting you're the biggest failure in the room, walk into the Father and bring all your garbage, in that moment, he goes, grace doth abound. And what happened is we got beneath that fountain and it washed us off. And here's the part that's not easy to handle. It washed us off. And we thought it was because we were just smarter than all those other people at that church. They were too stupid to catch what we caught. If they'd have been as smart as we were, they'd be following the Spirit like we are. Now listen, guys, I'm in grace circles and I know what I'm talking about. This is the mentality that has been created. You want to know who this scripture is to? This scripture is not to your sinner, friend. This scripture is to us. Let me take you back again. Just listen to this. Listen to Peter's question. Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? These are believers. This is is us. Listen, this is Jesus reaching 2,000 years into the future and going, come here, church. Let me show you a story about yourself. You think you did this. You didn't do this. I just pity you. That's why I forgive you, because I feel sorry for you. Because you can't do it on your own. I love it about you. I love it that you can't do it on your own. That means you'll hold my hand. That means you'll let me walk you across the desert. You'll let me carry you across that water. You'll let me. You'll let me. All the moments where you wouldn't let me is because you've been too smart. You've been too s- slick. You've been making too much. You've been doing too well. And you always thought that was favor. That's not favor. Favor's not when you've got it all figured out. It's when you've got nothing figured out. It's in that moment when you bring me all of your failures and all of your problems and then you just let me do it. And he goes, if you had just received that as a mark of pity rather than as a mark that you made me good promises, then you wouldn't have turned around and thought that everybody else was stupid and that everybody else was faithless and that everybody else was the problem and you might have forgiven the people around you. And he goes, you want to know why it's so hard to forgive them? Because you don't know why you're forgiven. You think you're forgiven because you made good promises, but you're actually forgiven. forgiven. Because I finally found someone who couldn't possibly pay me back. And I decided they needed some grace. James said, for God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Why did James write that? Because James knew that the only, the key to discovering the grace of the pitiful father, pit full of pity, the big hearted God who died to his bookkeeping ways so that you could have grace. Because forgiveness is a death. Because God died to what you owed him. Because you come to God and said, I need forgiven. And he goes, yeah, but you owe me a lot. Tell you what, I'm out of the bookkeeping business. I shut the thing down. We're going to take the shingle off the door. We're going to lock it up. No more bookkeeping. You get absolute freedom. Congratulations. And then we go right out into this world, and we go to work for Jesus. (laughs) And you go, yeah, but I don't hold anybody's feet to the fire for forgiveness. Mm. Just, man, what I've started to do is when when I don't think I'm in the story, I've started to take a really big pause and push back from the table when I'm reading the Bible and go, okay, I'm starting to think I'm a one character, but I got a feeling the reason you put me in this story in my heart, Lord, was because I haven't figured out which person I am in this story yet. And there's a reason you circled me back to this. So I need a little instruction. I need you to help me out just a little bit. I don't know what you do with your neighbor. I don't know how you handle those who have wronged you. But I know that Jesus' answer to Peter is the same answer he gives to us. Die to your right to be right. And that's where forgiveness starts. Die to your right to be avenged. And that's where forgiveness starts. Listen, refuse. Okay, I'm bringing it home. Refuse to die to it. What will that get you? Refuse to die to your right to be avenged or to be righted in the midst of the wrongs. Okay, so that we know what that will get us. How does the story go? When, his, when the Lord summoned him in verse 32, he said, You wicked slave. I forgave you all the debt, watch this, because you pleaded with me. Time out. I didn't forgive you the debt because you promised me. I forgave you the debt because you asked me to. I forgave you the debt because I'm good. I didn't forgive you the debt because you're good. Where did we get our wires crossed? Dude, this is what the king says to him. Where'd you mess this up? You came in there and asked for the forgiveness of a debt that was way over your head so that it wouldn't imprison your family. I gave up my whole business for you. My whole bookkeeping ways. I shut the whole thing down. I didn't expect anything in return from you. You went right out, picked my shingle up off the ground, opened your own offices. Your own offices of religion and payback. Your own offices of do good and get good. Your own offices have earned the anointing, earned God's favor. You pulled the spiritual slot machine uh, every week and every day and on every person you met. And a lot of us under grace, we're still doing it. We're just calling it grace because there's a part of us that has refused to die to our right, to get back what belongs to us. And every time we do that, don't read this as a message about where you're gonna spend eternity. This is where we make this mistake because we think in eternal terms, Here's Jesus reaching up into our world and pulling us back into his. So let's be fair. If he's gonna pull us back into his, they weren't thinking in eternal terms like where you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. That's a far more modern church idea than a first century Jewish idea. What were they thinking in terms of? The life of God known as the people of God. We get it because we're Jews and we're circumcised. And Jesus goes, eh, not so fast. That's not how it works anymore. You don't get just because who daddy is or that you got circumcised or that you read Torah or that you know where Sinai is or that you've offered lambs at a temple. He goes, those, the sun's going down on those days. Those are passing away. That's the last days of the new Testament. That's why Peter at Pentecost goes, this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel in the last days I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. When did that happen? At Azusa Street or at Pentecost? Pentecost. Pentecost. When were the last days? Pentecost. Why? Because they were watching the sun go down on an old economy, so much so that Peter quotes the part we always leave out. Always left this out in our Pentecost. We'd go, this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I'm going to pour out the Holy Ghost on your sons and your daughters. And your old men are going to dream dreams. And your young men are going to see visions. And then we'd stop and everybody'd shout. We didn't quote the next verse where he said, and the sun's going to be darkened and the moon's going to be turned to blood in that great and terrible day of the Lord. Guess what? Peter quotes that. We didn't quote it because we didn't understand that Peter wasn't talking about the sun going black and the moon turning to blood in a natural sense. He was talking to Israel, who knew they were the sun, the moon, and the stars of their economy. Go read the book of Genesis. And the sun was got the light, the curtains were coming down on the old way of seeing the world, and a brand new way was on the scene called the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit who applauds the enthroned Jesus on His throne in His kingdom. And where is that kingdom? Not somewhere over in the glory land, but somewhere everywhere you step your foot land. The rest of the new Testament just sort of revolves around that idea and goes, all that other stuff's coming down, all that other stuff's coming down. So Jesus grabs us 2022 Christians and he drags us right back into that story and he goes, okay, let's land this story, but get out of your 2022 ideas about the end of every story's heaven and hell and put into the end of your stories that every idea is about living in the kingdom or not. And let's land there. And in light of that, how does he end the story? You wicked slave, I forgave you everything because you pleaded. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, if you think this is hell, I want to throw you another curveball. How are you going to pay your debt back in hell? Point of the story was you're going, to, you're going to pay your debt back. I'm not just tormenting you for the jollies. I'm going to torment you till you pay me back. So if this is hell, then you have a theology that also says that if you could just burn long enough, you will pay him back. Okay, I'm not even going I'm not even really going to comment on that. I'm just going to let that, we're just going to let that baby die on the vine, all right? Instead, let's land where Jesus wants his audience to land, which is this. Listen, you want to walk in the fullness of dad's kingdom? Treat people the way dad treats you. You want to live in the hell of this world? Flip dad off. Pay him back. Go out there and do what you need to do. Go get yours. He goes, go get yours. Find somebody that owes you a little bit, shake them down. Go run over this world. You can do that if you want to. He goes, you want to know what's going to happen to you? Torment. You're going to try to pay God back for the rest of your life? It's not going to happen. I don't think anybody was talking at the end of Jesus' story. And I think Peter got his answer. Hey, Jesus. I don't think Peter walked up to him afterward and went, Hey, that was a good story, but how many times should I pay him back? (laughs) I don't think he did. The only basis for condemnation is the 34th and 35th verse of this story. Listen, you are not condemned because you're in Christ, but if you want to go back under some form of the way this world lives, the system of this world, just go ahead and live 34 and 34 out, 34 and 35 out. Just don't forgive. Don't show mercy. Don't function as if you belong to the kingdom. Function as if you're trying to get in through your performance. And that's the way to walk right back out. I I, I truly believe this, again, I'm not ready to fight about this, but, um, when Jesus said there's an unpardonable sin, he said it won't be forgiven in either this age or the age to come. I think that's it. I mean, the unpardonable sin is refusing to show pardon. If you refuse to show, because Jesus told you, he goes, if you refuse to show pardon, how in the world are you gonna walk in it? How are you gonna walk in what you, how are you gonna walk in what you don't know how to give out? You don't know how to give it out because you don't know you got it. If you don't know you got it, you're not gonna give it out. You wanna know why we see unforgiving believers? Because they don't know they're forgiven. You know why we see merciless people? Because they don't know they've been given mercy. Why do we see graceless people? Because they don't know grace is theirs. Let us not be those who, having received the grace of God, start to twist it and believe that maybe we got it because we were just smarter than everybody else. We just read the right book before they did. All those idiots just won't pay attention to Jesus like I do, careful. It's in that moment you're pulling a shakedown on somebody out there and the father's looking at you going is this the kind of kingdom you want to live in where every time you turn around you just feel like you're smarter than everybody else he goes good luck trying to press press a press a grace onto a world you already feel like you're better than because it won't work it's in these moments that i i'm glad that i wasn't there to ask jesus some of the questions i come up with because peter probably felt like he had a pretty good one I think Peter felt like he had a good question and a great answer. I really do. I think he went, I got a good one. I'm going to try to answer it for him. Hey, hey, Jesus, come here. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven? That's good, ain't it? Be as radical. I think I said this at Jamie's church. This will go up this weekend in our sermon. Be as radical. When you have a revelation of grace and the freedom of God, be as radical with including everyone in that as you used to be in excluding everybody that didn't agree with you. And until you're that radical about that love and that grace, I don't know if you know the big-hearted God you have. Because how much of it did you think you earned? Come on. How much of this do you deserve, Really? Now, I'll give you a little challenge question to to to, sort of land this baby. You really need to go to the mat with how much you think you deserve. It's a good test. And I mean it. Really go to the mat and inventory how much you feel like you've got because you've paid the price. And that's the extent of stuff we still need to lay down at His grace. And I don't like doing it. I really don't because there's still some parts of me that sneak up and go, yeah, you know what, but I've been doing this a while. I've been, I've been doing this a lot longer than that guy. I got, I got some stuff figured out. (laughs) Wrestle that out. Forgiveness is a death. Maybe you don't agree with that statement, but I don't think you'll see forgiveness the same way again. And that's at least something. And if you want to know what it means to forgive somebody, it's not just saying, yeah, yeah, forgive you. What have you died to? And if you haven't, how serious do you take forgiveness? And if you haven't died to something, how serious do you take the Father's forgiveness? And if you're still trying to pay Him back for forgiveness, it might be an indication why it's so difficult for you to walk in what you have and freely give it out. Jesus said, freely it has been given to us, freely we give. Or That's what Paul said, rather through Christ. Father, I thank you tonight for this word that I think is, I think is the kind of thing that challenges me sometimes to the point that I'm, I'm uncomfortable enough with it that I, sometimes I, I wish you'd give me something else because I, as much as I love to watch you work in the stories, it is, Humbling it's hurtful to get up here and find out that what you 're really doing is working on me and uh, I guess it's a hurt that 's okay because it means we'll we'll just limp our way out of it, and that's a pretty good place to be, so help me to deal with that and every one of these precious sheep your kids that you would leave the 99 to go find help us to process this forgiveness receive it into our hearts in Jesus name amen <laughs> remember when paul said in 1st corinthians I, I quoted for you 13:4 where where Paul said love suffers long that, that Greek word, uh, makrothymisun, big hearted, big hearted love is big hearted. The next verse. Love is not resentful, Greek. Love. Keeps no account, of evil. It's just uh, that's God going. I have stopped, being your bookkeeper there you go take what you need and so we take it so receive the non resentful aka no accounts kept love of God but don't dare keep it to yourself let everyone you see have some of it Freely given to me, freely given to you. What are you going to do for me? That I—I I mean, do you know what he's done for me? <sighs> That's that'll work, you, yeah. won't it? In a good way. It's a good way. I mean, I don't like it so much, but I like it. You know, it's kind of like that pain you get. You run a few miles, and you don't like how you feel, but you kind of like how you feel. Or maybe if you don't run any miles ever. Um, <laughs> You don't like how you feel, but that's for a whole different reason. But I just, it's one of those, almost like your muscles are a little sore. You kind of went to the mat with him, but it's good news. Let me, give me your thoughts and feelings.